Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. This is Rob Moore here with a very different style of Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. I want to keep challenging myself. I want to challenge you. I want to make sure that we're growing. I want to make sure that you don't get bored of my podcast at all. So this is a very different format. Now, the title is How to Set Up, Grow and Scale Your Business. You've had interviews with celebrities, multimillionaire business owners, my caffeine cast, the sort of short, sharp, motivational styles. You've had me doing two-parters and three-parters on all different topics. So this one's going to be more of a checklist. And I think part of you is going to love this and part of you is going to find this frustrating. So the frustrating part is there's going to be so many things you're going to want to write down. And if you're running or in the gym or listening to me on two times speed or however you consume the podcast, (laughs) you're going to keep stopping what you're doing because you're going to want to write this down. Obviously, the good part of this is you can use this as a tick list, a checklist, a tick box to A, starting your enterprise if you're looking to have a second income or a part-time job or setting up your own business on the side. If you've got your own business, but maybe you've kind of got perfect later and you need to go back and do some steps properly. Or if you've got a decent sized business and you're looking to scale it, franchise it, sell it, systemize it, whatever. So there's a lot of information to go through. Now, I've been promising or maybe I haven't committed, but I've certainly been suggesting that I'm going to be doing show notes for you. And there's going to be transcriptions of the podcast on the Disruptive Entrepreneur and RobMoore.com websites. We're certainly going to commit to that. You're going to need the transcript of this podcast for the checklist. I've got it in front of me, so I'm committing in front of what now? 375,000 people to getting this for you. That doesn't mean you don't have to enjoy this. Let it sink in or sit down and take detailed notes. So here we go then. So the the step-by-step system of setting up, growing and scaling your business. And let me have a look at how many steps we've got here. It's a lot. We've got nine steps and there's between eight and 13 steps of each sub step. So here we go. So the first step is to discover your vision and values first. I've done podcasts on it, so I don't need to repeat it. But there's no point going into a business if it's it's not in alignment with your vision and your values. It's not your passion profession merged, your vocation vacation merged. So you need to, a business is a representation of you. It's an external manifestation of you. And you need to go there first rather than setting up something because you think it's a a monetizable opportunity or you think it's a good opportunity or you're desperate for money or what are the reasons that people use. So you need to ask yourself these two questions. Number one, what's most important to me in my life? Ask yourself that and then list the seven or eight things that come to mind. Maybe there's five, maybe there's 10 put them in order of importance. And then the second question is, what is my purpose? You know, what, what am I meant to do? Why am I here? Now, if you answer those questions, it will help you answer the seven questions of step one. Now, you're allowed to take time con- to consider those because they're kind of almost meaning of life questions, but they're questions you should consider. All right then, so here are seven questions that you can ask yourself that'll help you elicit 
your vision and your values. So number one is what could you do all day that doesn't feel like work? Now, even when you do stuff that doesn't feel like work, at times it can feel like work. So I don't want you to have this delusional fantasy that there can be this thing that's just play all the time. I can play the guitar because I love the guitar and all day, every day I'm going to be so happy because sometimes you're going to get calluses and sometimes you're not going to be able to hit the chords or the notes for months on end because it's going to be very difficult and you're going to get frustrated. But for most of the time, what wouldn't feel like work? That's something that you could consider could be your business or your venture. Or if you've got one and you don't love it, starting again. Number two, in what areas are you prepared to endure challenges and see it as something that you'd have get up and go in rather than give up and go in? So you know sometimes when you're doing something that you really enjoy, there'll be a difficulty, but you'll have that get up and go and let's beat this. And then other times you'll be like, oh, sod this, I'm giving up, I can't handle this. And you have a full-on diva drama moment at the littlest challenge. So there's a clue in terms of if it's something that you'll endure, challenge and long-term, you'll have a long-term vision of and, and it's something that you could enjoy. Number three, what do you feel totally in flow doing where you feel like time flows? I remember when I was young, 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 seven, eight, nine summer with my friends in the sort of we used to live in a village where you didn't need to lock the doors or the cars and we used to play cricket with a little cricket set and we'd start at six after dinner and we'd play till like 9 30 uh, you know in the, in the sort of Indian summers of August September and uh, it, it'd be like we we're already uh, 45 minutes late to going back we knew we were going to get absolutely ripped into by our parents but we didn't even know how time was and there are things like that for you too and it's passion or profession suspend whether it's passion or profession for now because if you're in flow most of the time and can do it where you're not clock watching, you know you've got something that you'll do for the long term. Because most things will make money and make a difference sustainably and in a scalable fashion. If it's something that you, you, know, you love to do and you do for 10, 20 or 30 years. Number four, in what areas do you love helping people and you actually enjoy solving problems? So there's some areas of your life where you just don't want any of the grief. And it's like you get like a micro nano fraction of grief and you have a full on meltdown diva moment. And there are other areas where you're like, bring on the biggest challenges. I want to solve the biggest challenges because I know I have value. So in what areas do you actually love helping people, love helping them solve their problems and love solving problems? Or in what areas do you just absolutely uh, don't want any grief? Again, that's you're going to discover what you would endure and what you would enjoy. Number five. What do you feel that you're good at? What do you feel that you're better than most other people you know at? And or what could you become great at? Now, once all these questions start dovetailing, you're going to discover your sustainable business, your enterprise that you're going to merge passion profession with. Uh, you're going to endure challenge. But there are some things already right now that you're good at that you're not giving yourself credit for. Or there are some things you're good at now that you could become really great at. You know, if you spent some time honouring and serving that vocation vacation. So have a think about that. Number six, where are you already spending a lot of your time? What are you already thinking a lot about? You know, so for example, some of the techie startup -y people who, who have really great sustainable tech businesses, they loved science as a kid. They loved taking apart and putting back together all the electronics and the toys. You know, they loved hacking on the computer when they were 11. So are there things you're already doing that you, you know, that you love to do or things that you already think about that, you, again, could, uh, you could monetize or scale. All right, number seven, the final one on step one is what causes bigger than you could you see yourself involved in or what mission or education do you feel that you want to share? 
So often voids create value. So people who've had challenges and voids in their life where they feel empty, they're looking to fill. So that's when they may want to set up a disruptive education system that's kind of anti the school system, or they might want to set up some kind of charity or uh, rid the world of diseases because, um, you know, one of their friends or family members died of something like that. So what causes could you see yourself helping, being part of, being ambassador of? maybe even if you didn't initially earn from it, because that's, again, something that could become a lifelong mission. All right, so that was step one, which is your understanding your vision, values, and purpose. And that's the foundation of every business. Now, you can make money doing loads of things, but you won't endure challenge, you won't grow, scale, you won't do it for a long amount of time if it's not based on the foundations of your vision, values, and purpose. All right, then, step two. So step two is to act upon and start a business around what comes up consistently. You know, that you'll find ways to monetize, that you have latent talent and uniqueness. So it's not just, hey, I'm gonna sell gold because we're in a recession and and gold is good, or I'm gonna do Bitcoin because Bitcoin is good. It's not about transient kind of fly-by-night opportunities. It's about things that will come up consistently in your life that you could monetize for the long term, even if they're um, cyclical or not, or popular or not. And where you have some latent, because if, if it wasn't latent, you'd already be doing it, talent and uniqueness. So here are nine steps for step two. So the first thing is you want to test a meaningful problem or solution. Most people, when they go into a business, whatever it is, let's say it's cake decoration, you know, they, they, they do everything. They build their website, they do their business cards, they hire a premises, you know, they buy loads of stock. They do too much too soon. The first thing you've got to do is test. And um, there are a million ways to do that. Ask some friends and family, put up some posts on Facebook, just create a small minimum viable product and go and ask a few people to test it and but sell it to a few people first. Don't go too big too quick because then you, um, you have too much fixed cost and overhead and it might not, it might not scale. You might, it might not be the right thing for you. The second or third thing you try might be the right thing for you. So does your business serve, solve and scale? So a business that might serve you but not others is not scalable. If it doesn't solve problems, people aren't going to pay a lot for it because people often pay money to have problems solved, have things done faster, quicker, easier. Does it scale? So if it is cake decoration but only on macaroons and only in green, then it may not scale. So you've got to think about that too. Step three then is to crowdsource your product or service and create a minimum viable product as soon as you can. So let's say you're in, I'm just using random examples here, but let's say you're into cake baking or cake decoration. Well, you go into a community where there are people who do cake baking decoration or they're consumers of, you ask them what kind of cakes they want. You have this vision that you want to make wedding cakes, but you realize actually it's carrot cake that everyone loves. So that's what you start with. So crowdsourcing is collating all of the desires, ideas and feedback from a, a working test group and starting with that and creating a sort of a, a raw version one minimum viable product, which you can then go and test on people and then improve as you go, iterate as they say. Number four, step four, is to test your product, your service or your IP with low overhead, low risk, first and fast. So kind of similar to what I've been saying, but just making sure that you don't go and set up premises and build everything that costs a lot of money when you've got something that you don't know scales or serves. So just go out there and don't worry about it being perfect, get perfect later. 
When all is said and done, more is said than done. So go out there, test, get your feelers out. Step five then is to get feedback from people and then iterate. So all these fancy Silicon Valley words, iterate, pivot, you know, um, version 1.1, whatever. But very often products and services that you now take for granted, Coke, uh, which is a, obviously a soft drink was a me- medicine. The post-it note was a failed glue. So what might be your version three, four or five product that might you know, make you millions or billions or might be the biggest seller ever if you're running an e-commerce business on eBay or Amazon, your third or fourth product might be the one that goes. Just like a band, it might be their third or fourth album, you don't know. So it's really important to get feedback from, and by the way, not just mum and dad and friends who will go, yeah, it's great, yeah, it's great, yeah, it's great. You don't want that kind of feedback at all. You don't want to seek uh, yes people. You want critical feedback. You want people to rip it to bits so you can put it back together. And then once you've got that feedback, then you go, oh, okay, so it actually needs to look a bit different. I'll, t- I'll tweak it a little bit. And then really you just reduce the risk and you increase your ability to make money and to scale. And I did that with Life Leverage. There was nine books I wanted to write. Life Leverage was, it wasn't at the time called Life Leverage. It was just about um, outsourcing and scaling up. And the one I really wanted to write was about money. And I went into a couple of our online communities. I asked about 20,000 people. Uh, out of these nine books I've got, just tell me which one you'd like me to write first. And it was something crazy, like nearly three quarters of the people said what's become life leverage. Now, kind of my, my desire, my ego wanted me to write the book I was most passionate about. But when, seven, when three out of four people or 75% have said, hey, I'll buy this book, they, they don't say I'll buy this book. But when they say, I want you to write this book because this is my need, they're basically saying, I'll buy this book when you launch it. So we crowdsourced the title, the subtitle, the content. I tested some of the chapters. I iterated and tweaked based on people's feedback. And then you have, you have a product with hungry buyers already. And that's really important. Step six is to pivot frequently and don't be too attached to what you want. Now, Kodak is a famous company that that kind of really went bust because they didn't want to do digital photography. Whereas on the other side, the ones that pivoted positively are Rolls-Royce, who were just aircraft and went into cars, Coca-Cola, who were medicine and obviously went into soft drinks. So there are many business models now that have been around for hundreds of years that aren't doing what they originally did and they pivoted with changing technology and changing needs. But if you're too set in your ways is, you know, I want to create iPhone covers and iPhone screen protectors for the rest of my life. Well, when iPhones aren't anymore or they, you know, there's something bigger comes along, you don't have that flexibility. So being able to pivot is important. Now, when you're a disruptive entrepreneur, you're small, it's so much easier to pivot. You haven't got through, got to go through layers of management and get a sign off and, you know, there's no budget for the next 28 years. Change many people see as a weakness. A lot of people say, well, you know, this is my business. This is what I want to do. But there's got to be a fine balance between what you want to give the world, what you want to serve and what the world wants and needs and how they want to be served. And that's a fine balance. And you've got to, you've got to get some kind of equilibrium there if you can. So number seven, then on step two. And now you, you, you can't ask this straight away. But it is an important question to ask early, which is, can you monetize it? Like, can you really monetize it? Are you being nostalgic and romantic or can you really monetize it? So you've done a couple of tests. You've not risked too much. You've done it from your bedroom. You've sold to a few friends and and family and people on Facebook. So you've not really, you haven't gone to the world and gone, hey, I do this. So you've risked looking stupid. But now is the time to ask, can I really monetize it? You've got enough data to do a test to say yes or no. 
and you haven't gone too deep and set up too many overheads such that you're kind of too much vested in. Because a lot of people, they're vested in too much to turn back. And they could be 10, 20 years down the line, not making any money still. But, they're, you know, six months or six weeks in, they're like, oh, well, I can't turn back now. But you've got to be honest about that. And if you can't monetize it and scale it to the, to the amount that you want, then what you've got to do is go back to these friends, family, Facebook friends and Twitter followers and people you've um, taken feedback from and say, OK, well, you don't want that. What do you want? And then you give it to them. Step eight of step two is who is your ideal customer and are there enough of your ideal customers? Now, if you're too nostalgic and you want to give something to the market where there is no market, then that's just being delusional about the, you know, the fact that you have a business. Now, in the podcast interview I did with Shah Wasmund MBE, which was, what, a couple of episodes now, um, Shah clearly disting, distinguished what the difference between a business and a hobby is. And they're similar, except one makes money. Now, if your thing doesn't make money and it doesn't have um, enough customers, but it's your hobby and you want to keep it as your hobby and you don't want to ruin it, fine, make it your hobby. Just don't be delusional that it is your business. Okay, and then step nine is you keep repeating this process for each product launch, service launch, each new sort of version or scaling up of your business. Because some businesses will do this at the start and then once they get rolling, they think that they don't need to do it anymore, but this is an ongoing cyclical process. You know, Microsoft were great at testing their products on us and kind of giving you updates as it goes. So um, you, you never want to lose that ability. If you do your third product, which is your biggest product, when you do have a lot of overhead and you do have a lot of brand goodwill that you can lose, you can fail and, you know, and then it can cause you a lot of damage. Okay, just looking at these, what, eight or nine steps, I don't think we're going to get through all of them on this episode, which is quite typical of me to create a two-parter halfway through a one-parter. All right, then, so step three is creating your product or service and going live. All right, so just to recap, step one is start with your minimum viable product and iterate. Step two, do you have intellectual property or a license or a patent or a trademark? If you do, you may want to look at uh, protecting that early. If you don't have any of those, don't worry about it. Now, there's a difference between sort of IP that most people can find online. So if you're creating any kind of education or courses, the reality is it's kind of difficult to IPize that. And um, the best way to do that is just to create your own unique system. So we have a reason model, castled model in progressive property, which are reasons not to buy and building your own empire, the castled model now. You know, we can't really sort of get trademarks on those. Well, we could, we could pay a lot of money, but someone could just change the word reason to reasons or castled to castle and argue that it's theirs. And do you want to spend loads of money going through lawyers? If you make something that's so clearly yours because you put your own flavor in it and you put your own jokes and your own system and your own color coding in, it's kind of going to be hard for people to kind of borrow it. But anything that's kind of education, training or material related, it's very difficult to trademark, patent, license. And I wouldn't waste your time on that. But if it is, you know, an invention or if it's maybe a, a very specific franchise, you know, where it clearly can be copied or it's an algorithm, then you probably do, do, want, to do want to do that first. and You want to get good legal advice on that. All right. Step three, then uh, you want to set up your company and you, do, you don't want to have done this before. Now, this is in an order. So you can do this online really quickly or you can hire an accountant to do it for you. But if you just put how to set up a company online or set up a company online, you can do it for um, less than 100 quid, I believe. You obviously want to buy your domain name and link those names. And you want to make sure that the domain name isn't taken and the company name isn't taken. 
you can do all of those searches online really easy. Step four is, are you going to run the business alone when you start? Are you going to have a business partner, which I really advise? And what staff are you going to have at the start? Now, I would get started as you are. Set up your business in your bedroom or wherever you are. Whatever you, whatever you want to do in the future, do it now. If it's scale or franchise, start now. If it's set up, start now. If it's leaving three years, start now. Uh, but you want to kind of think about, okay, am I going to run this on my own and I'm going to be the you know, CEO, which is some people like to do, in which case you'll have to have at least one extra staff because you don't have a business partner. Are you going to look for a business partner who's the yin to your yang? Uh, what staff do you need early? And you want to look at this early. And that could just be outsourced, a virtual assistant and, you know, outsourced web designer. You could outsource sales. You could have a digital agency for your marketing. You could have a ghostwriter for your book. Look, don't be under the illusion that you have to do all this yourself. You can outsource all of this, you know, with all of the sites that there are now and with, you know, how easy online networks you with virtually everyone across the planet. It's easier than ever. Um, I like kind of real people because I've got a, a mission and a vision and I find that people can buy into that and um, I like to have real local people. So probably the most important people you'll hire in the early days is going to be your assistant, whether that's a PA or an executive assistant, an MD or someone who's going to be the operations manager for your business. You know, you might be the CEO, but they're going to be MD or ops manager. You certainly want someone in sales and someone in marketing very early. So you want to think about that. Number five on step three is to work out your costs and margins in isolation and including overhead. And you want to work out your gross profit and your net profit. So what are your fixed and variable costs? So fixed costs might be a long-term lease, for example. And it might be staff costs. A variable cost might be cost of buying a batch of products. And you want to work out your gross margins and your net margins. Now, if that's not something that's really your bag, you can go and read books online. There's one called Naked Finance, a book called Naked Finance, which is really good for kind of non-financy people reading balance sheets, profit and loss statements and learning about all of that. You definitely want to have an overview of that because, you know, running a business, you're going to be able to, you're going to need to be able to have a good understanding of that. If you've got a small business, you might want to hire an extra, an outsourced FD that comes in once a week. You might want to hire an FD if you're at 30 staff, 40 staff, 50 staff, and you've got an accounts department. You might want to hire an, a high level FD so you can outsource this. But whilst I'm not the um, biggest expert ever in finance, for sure, I have learned to read basic profit and loss statements and balance sheets and understand the difference between gross profit and net profit and, you know, reading the, the top line and the bottom line of a, a profit and loss statement and blah, blah, blah. And that's really important to do. And by the way, I just, you know, I love doing that, not because I love finance and numbers, but because I know that the better I understand that when I read one, I can make better decisions in my business, which means I'm kind of more empowered to basically de-risk something going wrong externally with my business and increasing the likelihood of it succeeding. There are certain um, key metrics you need to know. So point six, there are loads of KPIs for your business, loads and loads and loads. I've probably done a previous podcast on it. If I haven't, I definitely will do a future one. And if you search me online, I've done loads of stuff on key performance indicators. There's a section in Life Leverage on it. But some really important top level ones are your break even point. So, you know, when, when you're, it's kind of easier if you're kind of a product or a commoditized business more than a service based business. But, you know, you want to know what your break even point is, i.e. where your sales meet your overhead. You want to know what your MAC is, your maximum acquisition cost per customer. So if you know your break even point, then you can work out, okay, so what's the maximum 
amount I can pay per client, which hits either break even or hits maybe a 10% profit margin. And you can work out what that is. So let's say you're going to work out that um, the maximum acquisition cost of a new customer is going to be half your net profit and your net profit is 20%. And you can, you're essentially going to pay the cost plus the 10% of net profit margin to acquire a customer. And you could work that out in hard amount. So you could work it out as a percentage, but it might be it might be sixty-five pounds to acquire a new customer, and you know that's going to make you a ten percent net profit margin. And that really means as long as you don't spend more than that to acquire a new client, you've basically got a license to print money because you know each client that you purchase is going to have a ten percent net profit margin. Now, if you want to, if you want it to be a double license to print money and a leveraged license to print money, you work that out on the first product, but they have lifetime client value. So that's your next metric, which is LCV, lifetime client value. If you have eight products in your product staircase uh, and you, you, you have a maximum acquisition cost for a 10% margin on the first product, you know that 50% of them will buy the second product, 50% of them will buy the third product, 50% of them will buy the fourth product, 50% of them blah, blah, blah. And so actually there's a lot more lifetime client value margin, not just on the first product they buy. So you want to work out your LCV. And the way you work that out is your total turnover, not just per year, but in total, divided by the total number of customers you've had. All right. And then you've got PHR, which is per head revenue. So if you have a lot of customers, maybe you run events and you sell at events. And um, so you do the turnover of the event divided by the number of heads at the event. Then you can work out what the per head revenue is. Or if you have um, a membership site, for example, you can work out the monthly per head revenue. You can work out the drop off. So you could work out the quarterly per head revenue, including all the drop off. Now, every business model is different, so you might want to iterate those, tweak those a bit. But let me just remind you, you've got MAC, M-A-C, maximum acquisition cost. You've got LCV, lifetime client value. You've got BEP, break even point, and you've got PHR per head revenue. If you just use those four metrics continually in your business, your business will change forever. All right, then number seven is how you're going to finance your business. Now, whilst VC and private finance and selling your shares for millions and millions and millions is all kind of sexy in the VC world, if you want a bit of history on VC, by the way, I recommend Something Ventured. It's a great documentary. In a future podcast, I'm going to be reviewing my top 10 favorite documentaries, the ones that entertain and educate at the same time. I've got so much value out of those. Sorry, just as a bit of a side note, because I want to give you maximum value. So it's called Something Ventured. But there's massive downsides of selling shares in your company or getting loans to start up your company. And people don't see the downsides because they need the money and they think that getting the money is the be all and an end all. But often you just kick the can of the problem down the road and you get a bigger problem later on. Because when you sell shares in your company, you're diluting your future value. You don't have autonomy of decisions maybe anymore. You've got complicated and convoluted legal process. And I, my favorite way, and you know, it's not the only way, but my favorite way is to finance through cash flow, i.e. follow my steps, go and sell some stuff, put some money in the bank, then reinvest that money into building your business. What's wrong with that? Now, okay, you could say it's the real slow way. And if you've got aspirations of building a billion dollar company in five years, which A, might be delusion, but B, if that's your aspiration, then fine. 
and you might want um, you know, some key investors around you and you might want, might want some key players at the, the higher level. So I'm not saying it's different, not necessarily better or worse, but the good thing about financing through cash flow is that you don't create the extra overhead or time overhead or the consequence of borrowing money. But you just got to think about how you're going to scale. Now, you could finance through cash flow and then, and then um, kind of do a later round of, you know, getting finance in through loan or VC money or whatever, selling shares later on. All right, then step eight is focus on making money and not spending it. Now, a lot of people, when they get money, they spend it. And uh, you've got to be very focused on making money. You definitely want to save money. You want to work out your burn rate. So your burn rate is how many months that your business has cash flow, assuming no sales. So let's say your overhead is 10 grand a month and you've got 120 grand in the, uh, in the bank and that, that assumes a 12-month burn rate or 12-month cash flow position, whereby even if you didn't do one pound or one dollar of extra sales in the next 12 months, your business can survive for a month. Now, I remember reading on Bill Gates and he used to talk about two or three years cash in bank or, you know, two or three years worth of burn in the bank. And I modeled that. And a lot of companies are working month to month, hand to mouth. What is it that Jim Rohn said? Not enough month left at the end of the money. Yeah, uh, get your head around that. So you, you want to make sure you focus on money and you don't spend all the money and you reinvest some of the money, but you keep capital in the bank so that if the economy changes, then, you know, you've got, you've got money there to save you. Now, if every business had five years working capital in the bank, which is probably a bit overkill, but if they did, then they could survive a five-year recession, assuming no sales. But even in a recession, you're going to do some sales. You might just do a third less or 40% less. So that's really important. All right, then. So step four, this is going to be the final step. So we'll do step five, step six, step seven. And step eight and step nine on part two of how to set up, grow and scale your business. So step four is values, vision, mission and culture of your enterprise. So you don't need to do that straight away because you need to go out, set up your MVP, crowdsource, get some money in the bank, iterate and go with your version two. But once you've got a few staff, once you've got some brand goodwill, you know, once you've got communities and customers, you know, the way you're going to scale is for people to buy into how you're different, you know, your disruptive enterprise. What are your values that are unique and different? What's your vision that changes the world? What's your mission that people can go, wow, I'm not just buying products and services, I'm buying how they change the world. And what's the culture? How are you different to all the other AN other companies that are all employing in your local town or city or online? So that's VVMC, value, vision, mission, culture. So some six quick fire questions to think about. Question one, what do you believe in? What do you stand for? What do you stand against? You know, what do you do that's important? What, do, what would you never do because that's a conflict or a sellout of your VVMC? Number two, what makes you unique? What makes you different? What makes you quirky? What makes you surprise people? What makes you uh, drop pe people's jaws on the floor? What makes you talked about? Because people are going to go and work for those kind of companies, whether online or actually in your office. But if you're AN other, copycat, then they're just going to go with you while your offer is better and then go with someone else when their offer is better. 
How do you change the, change the world? How do you make that dent in the universe that Steve Jobs talked about? How do you matter? How do you matter to people? How do you matter to your clients? And you know, how, do, how do your products and services do good, make money and make a difference? And you know, I don't want to get too sort of spiritual, but you do need to balance making money with making a difference. If you're just making a difference and not making any money, you're not sustainable. If you're just making money and you're not making a difference, you're not sustainable because in the end, people will uh, force the money away from you in refunds or complaints or you know, you, you will, your reputation will damage you. So that is important to think about. Not before you've got some money in the bank, no, maybe. Number four, how do you serve and solve? How do you make things faster, quicker, easier, better for people? Number five, how uh, do you outsource your VVMC and crowdsource your VVMC to your staff so that they're involved? So you're probably going to create values, vision, mission, culture in the early days. But if you do that before you've made a penny, then it takes longer to make a penny. So I I like to encourage you, and we did, always get our team, even if there's a team of four and two of them are you and your business partner, involved, crowdsourced in what are our values, vision, mission and culture. So at crossroads along our journey, whether it's my mum and Mark's mum when we started or our first five staff or 50 staff or 500 staff, you know, you get your team involved. You have a quick um, brainstorming meeting of why, of why are we different? You can use this checklist I've given you. What are our three or four values for progressive? They're progressive, innovative, and personal. They used to be progressive, innovative, personal, and prepared. But how can you be progressive, innovative, and prepared? That's a dichotomy. We were never prepared. We let that go. It's okay not to be that because we'd rather be progressive and innovative than prepared. And you know, these were crowdsourced for our staff. And when people are involved in the creation of the vision and the values, they feel more as part of a team and not just, you know, you ruling with the iron fist. And then step six on values, vision, mission and culture is what makes your company the best company to work for in the world. Even if you're from a small town or city like Peterborough, where, you know, you're not in Silicon Valley or you're not in Austin, Texas, or you're not in London or Paris or wherever. And, you know, you think, well, you know, that that kind of funky beanbag culture is only for the big cities and the big companies. No, you know, you're going to reduce the overhead of attraction for staff if you're the best company in your city to work for, because you don't have to pay recruitment consultants, people will queue up to want to work for you. Therefore, you know, you're going to get the best talent. Therefore, you're going to have the lowest churn rate of staff. So, you know, maybe you might have a quirky culture. Maybe you have the best benefits package. You know, you might have a week or two weeks more holiday. You might go really crazy and have kind of no working rules where people can come and go as they want and they have unlimited holiday. That might be risky, but it might reward. You could have, you know, free food and drink on site. So, you know, if you give benefits that are bigger and better than the competitors, people will stay with you longer because they're getting their own needs met. All right. So that's part one of how to set up, grow and scale your business. So I will produce show notes for this. We will have this checklist on the Disruptive Entrepreneur website and the robmore.com website. Bear with us. It might take a few weeks because, you know, we're, um, we're iterating all the time. I've got something very, very exciting to announce, and that is that in about four and a half weeks' time, the brand new Business Lifestyle Summit will launch. Now, I'm going to get some of my multimillionaire, very specifically carefully chosen friends in various different niches of business, so in public speaking, in creating cash flow, in online marketing, in social media marketing. I'll be doing a a keynote speech at at this event, 
And we're going to help you grow and scale your enterprise, whether you're a startup or you're a, a seven-figure business, anywhere between startup and seven-figure. Maybe if you're eight-figure, maybe this event isn't for you. Now, nothing I ever do in terms of events is free, but I'm going to reward you for being a Disruptive Entrepreneur subscriber. And all you have to do is share this podcast on your Facebook or Twitter or social media profiles. Link me in and link a link to the Disruptive Entrepreneur. And I'm actually going to give you two tickets to this Business Lifestyle Summit, which otherwise I'd be charging 1000 or 2000 for. All of my events at the delivery level are 1000 up to £5,000. And I'm actually going to give this event to you at no cost and two tickets if you just share the Disruptive Entrepreneur on your social platforms. Then all you need to do is private message me, show me the image, and then I'll liaise with you and I'll do that personally. So make sure you're following me on Facebook, which is Rob Moore Progressive, on Twitter, which is Rob Progressive, or you're in the Disruptive Entrepreneurs community, which you can search for on Facebook in the group. And I will, I will basically hand uh, accept you the tickets. I'll give you all the details for the event, all the dates. We've got a, a, a two date choice, I think only. There may be a third one. I mean, there are nearly what? nearly 400,000 subscribers. Now, a lot of them are overseas and this is a UK only event, but my guess is this is going to fill up very quickly. If you're listening to this podcast a few weeks after, then this will probably be full. I'm kind of a little bit apprehensive here at how my inbox is going to probably be a bit overwhelmed, but it's called Business Lifestyle Summit. It's everything you need. Basically, this, um, this nine-step checklist system I've given you on the two-part of this podcast we're going to do that over two days. I'm going to be there personally. I'm going to be book signing and I'm going to be doing a keynote speech. I'll probably get a major celebrity to do a keynote speech as well to really help you. And I've got hand-picked guests who at least five of them I can think of are multimillionaires who can help you grow and scale your enterprise. So it's a brand new event. We've never run it before. I'm very excited. And, um, you know, really just my mission is to create global financial freedom. And I think this can really help you. It's not one of those pitch festy events where you get sold to every five minutes. So, you know, you're going to learn a lot, bring notepads and iPads. It's going to be a very deep learning experience. So share the disruptive entrepreneur on your social media profiles, private message me, show me, be quick. And, uh, you know, maybe we can meet in person. I'll certainly be there Saturday evening, probably Sunday morning. I always stay for as long as it takes. So we'll get to meet personally, which would be a great thing to do too. All right. So this has been the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Uh, tune in for part two, which is likely to be next week. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. 